Hello, this is Richard Hermer, and welcome to the Matrix Law Pod. We're back after a very long break. Uh, that's been due not simply to binging on Netflix uh, box sets, but because of the realities of full-time jobs of dealing with cases and running institutions. In fact, we've had an internal discussion as to whether or not it was worth carrying on uh, with these episodes. We've asked ourselves some hard questions about whether or not it's worth it. As is often the case when you ask yourself hard questions, for us at least, it's been an affirmatory process. We feel that there really is a need for discussion about the challenges to the rule of law, both here and abroad, and the importance of protecting and promoting human rights. So we're back, energised, for a whole new series. And indeed, today's uh, pod exemplifies the importance of promotion of human rights. It's addressing the protection of the most vulnerable and often the most vilified sections of our society, immigrants. The pod is a discussion between my colleagues Samantha Knight and Raza Hussein of Matrix with Maya Goodfellow, author of Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became the Scapegoats. They cover the history and origins of the hostile environment, the broad consensus between Conservative and Labour parties on being tough on immigration. Remember Ed Miliband's mug? They also turn to the Windrush scandal and the real limits of the courts to temper the harsh effects of the laws and policy in this area. It's a fascinating discussion and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Matrix podcast. My name is Sam Knights. I'm a barrister at Matrix. I'm here today with my good fellow writer and academic working on race, bordering and capitalism and author of Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats, which was published in 2019 and updated last year. And I'm also here with Raza Hussein, one of my colleagues who's been at the forefront of so many of the cutting edge challenges in the area of refugee and immigration law in the last three decades. We're here to discuss the hostile environment, what it means, how it came about, and why we all need to understand how it affects and disrupts the lives of individuals, including British citizens, both in this country and abroad. We're speaking in the midst of a third lockdown in the pandemic, and we can see how it's disproportionately affecting those who are most vulnerable in society. But we're also speaking in the aftermath of the Windrush scandal, which we'll come on to talk about in a minute, but which shows us exactly how bad things can get with the hostile environment. Maya, huge congratulations on the book. It's had deservedly rave reviews, and it's great to have you here today. We should start off by talking um, about what is meant by hostile environment and also what the trigger was for you in writing the book. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for having me and for that really kind introduction. Um, I suppose thinking about the hostile environment, there's two different ways we can sort of talk about this, I think, at least. Um, one I think we can talk about in a bit, which is the longer, histori- uh, like the historical hostile environment that Britain has been for many people who have migrated here. But what we understand it really, this term now in the contemporary moment, is really these 
sets of policies that were primarily brought in through the 2014 and 2016 Immigration Act that include things like checks, like so NHS checks, checks of landlords, um, even in schools, universities, and um, when people um, are applying for work. Um, checks of immigration status, but it also covers things like data sharing between different governmental departments. And as you sort of indicated, um, and as was really talked about when it was uh, first introduced in a big way by um, then Home Secretary Theresa May, is this was about, this is and was about making certain groups of people, in particular people who are undocumented, um, fearful, not able to access certain services within the UK and essentially making it, putting pressure on them to leave the country. And we've seen the impact of this during the pandemic. So as we're talking now, the government very, very recently announced that um, people who, regardless of your status, you were able to get the COVID vaccine. But we know that many people who are undocumented will be scared of doing that because they've lived, they live in a country where for decades and at least the past 10 years, politicians have talked about making this a hostile environment for them. And so writing the book, I was concerned not only with that contemporary hostile environment, but with also this much longer history. And part of the impetus for that was really looking at how the political debate is structured around it. This idea that it's not possible to talk about immigration when we know that immigration is something that has been talked about endlessly, but also this idea that Britain has only just become a hostile country, either with this, this the, the Conservative government, first the coalition government, then the Conservative governments, or with Brexit. And actually, if we look at the history, what we see is a much longer history of hostility. That isn't to ignore the specificity of now, the ways people are being impacted, but it is to situate that in a, in a broader historical context, which I think is incredibly important. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, and I think your book does this so well. So as, as you say, a lot of people think of the hostile environment and they think of Theresa May um, coming out with it um, as a new phenomenon. But of course, it wasn't. And if you trace back to the um, to the late 40s and um, 50s, and in particular, what was going on with two um, acts of parliament in the 60s, you can see that this you know, begun in that period and carried on. So do you want to say something, Maya, about that you know that period um, and you know why it came about then this you know, post kind of colonial environment that they they sprung up in. Yeah, I think it's a, a really important history to get to grips with for a number of different reasons that I could probably talk about for hours. But I suppose two of the core things to pull out from 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 this this time period for me is that people who were living in the colonies and former colonies. Um, were allowed to, were able to come to Britain as citizens and subjects. This was sort of brought in through the 1948 British Nationality Act, but it was already, people already had these rights. And in a lot of ways, this was sort of, I mean, I'm sure you can both speak to this in a much better way than me, but it was codified into law that people were able to move to the UK from countries all around the world. And so that history is really erased. And often now that movement is talked about as immigration, but actually people weren't moving as migrants as such they were coming as citizens or subjects. And the reason that's important, Gaminda Bambra, who is an academic at the University of Sussex, said this to me is that that isn't to to say that immigration should continue to be problematized and that this, these groups should be separate from groups that we might call immigrants. But it's to, to shift our understanding of what migration is and what movement is and to understand that actually this has always been a part of 
the world. It's always been a part of Britain to have people move. But the, that period of time when a lot of that legislation was brought in, in particular from the 60s onwards, you look at the debates and I was not surprised, but I also was surprised at how much of what was said about immigration, the negative um, arguments against immigration were like be mapped onto our debate now. So politicians would talk about immigration being a problem for the economy, being a problem for culture. But crucially to understand that time is that it was almost entirely about race. And so what you find in those laws although it's not explicitly said the, it, within those laws, is that the laws that were introduced were about making it more difficult for people who were not white, um, people of colour is a term we might use now, um, to come to Britain. And so actually when we look back, again, Gaminda Bambra, who I interviewed, um, said, you know, these were called immigration acts, but they were really policies of racialization, marking out who was really belonged to to Britain and that history of racism within within the legislation and within the immigration debate has in a lot of ways been sort of erased and I think it's really important now not just to understand the history but to understand that racism and immigration have long been intertwined in very com- complex ways so anti-immigration sentiment and racism these two things are now treated as if they're separate or at least in the political debate and that history should really encourage us to think more critically about the relationship between the two not only historically but in in the present moment too right so you had um as you you know alluded to the 1948 nationality uh, act which gave um citizens of the commonwealth the right of abode and then that was stripped away in two subsequent acts in the 1960s uh, commonwealth immigrants acts and narrowed and and i think what's interesting about those acts is that one was um a, a labor um, act and one was a conservative act, and so you see from this very early period that you know, Labour and Conservative, in many ways, governments are aligned in their hostility towards um, immigration. I mean, Raza, you know, one of the things that we struggle with as lawyers in this area is the law is so complex, isn't it? I mean, I don't think there's any other area quite like this in terms of the laws constantly being um, changed and and laws being in, you know, affected by secondary legislation and by rules. Um, I mean, it's it's in, an incredibly complex area of law. And as, of course, if you go, if you're studying law as a degree, you wouldn't um, necessarily study immigration law at all. So you wouldn't necessarily know anything about the history of these, of, of these laws. But I mean, you've been working in this area for, for such a long time. You've seen these, you know, so many changes in this area, which, um, which you know, we have to keep up with. Yeah, I mean, I think those are very fair points. I think that uh, immigration law is easily the most fast-paced-changing area of law that there is. Um, And it's not just that. It's it's not that there are sort of easy concepts that are being changed over time and very rapidly. It's more that there is extraordinary complexity to the point that very experienced, very intellectually brilliant judges say, look, this is just difficult to understand. Uh, and sort of what hope do, do sort of people have, even with uh, legal advice? Um, it, it's extraordinarily uh, labyrinthine, uh, to the point of, of where, where I think it sort of raises an issue about 
transparency and accessibility, which are sort of basic features of any uh, legal system, both as a matter of um, sort of legal philosophy, if you look at the fuller articles from the 50s, um, as a matter of domestic common law, as a matter of um, basic international human rights law, you, you've got to have laws that are accessible and transparent. There's a real issue as to whether whether what we have is or not. I mean, I, I challenge anybody to read the immigration rules and, and tell me w- w- what they're providing for. I mean, it's extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, I have to say that on on that, I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to read so much of so much of this and really, really struggling to get my head around it when I was doing the research for the book. And the number of people I interviewed who were trying to navigate the system, and exactly as you say, it's like it's almost impenetrable in terms of trying to trying to make sense of what you you know what forms you need to fill in what what the what sort of case you should make on your own behalf about your right to stay in the country and it does seem you know i spoke to a lot of people who not only about the laws but also around um you know the, the treatment that they had when they had to go to things like immigration reporting centers who said more more than one person said to me it really feels like this whole system is just designed to make me give up and leave and that is, uh, you know, to have to navigate that as so many people that I spoke to did for years is just not only expensive, but the toll it takes must be huge. Yeah. I mean, just on that point, there's, there's been a kind of paradigm shift in, in, in the rules. Um, when I started out, we had the rules which were called HC251. And the structure of those rules were to give discretion to immigration officers and the Secretary of State's officers. Um, they were sort of broad guidelines that they laid down. Then the sort of early 90s, um, HC251 was superseded by what you've basically got now, although it's amended on a kind of yearly, month or sort of six monthly basis, um, which is H3959. HC395. That was far more prescriptive. It sort of set out necessary and sufficient conditions insofar as the rules can, you know, subject to sort of exceptional um, departure from them. So the Secretary of State could depart in exceptional circumstances. But basically, the model of the rule was that here here are the criteria that you have to meet. And in one sense, that's good because it shows you with clarity what the test is. Um, And so instead of discretion, you've had you had sort of prescription, but it's. I think it's fair to say, you know, court of, as I said, court of appeal judges have said that's been taken to an absurd length, where they they really are um, impenetrable. So the other thing I wanted to say is, you were talking about the uh, my you, you and Sam were talking about the, the Immigration Acts of 1962 and 1968. 1968 Commonwealth Immigration Act obviously um, has these uh, remarkable uh, sort of feature of it that not only Maya would you say it's racially discriminatory Sam you or I say it the European Commission said that that you had a racially discriminatory piece of legislation which amounted to inhuman treatment and the UK obviously settled uh, that case so it, this isn't sort of some yeah uh, extra uh, you know activist um, idea. It's you know you know a, a judicial, very significant judicial organ uh, said that about the 1968 Act. And again, yeah. you know, Labour and and because I think one of our colleagues, Sam Karen Monaghan, has talked about how Labour historically has been very good 
on race discrimination in terms of people who are here in the UK, but very hostile in terms of uh, immigration. Yes, and and, and that's a, um, something that Maya talks about in in the book as well. I mean, the other point I wanted to um, make because it's it's obvious when you're working in this field in the area of um, asylum and refugee law is, but not always obvious. Um, is to others is that there is no legal way you can get um, to the United Kingdom to make a claim for asylum as a refugee. So what that, of course, does is it forces people to use people smugglers. It forces them into the hands of traffickers or they have to um, try and make an application under some other um, immigration rule for some kind of visa. Um, and then, of course, they get accused of having having lied. And that feeds into the you know, increasing use of laws of you know to outsource border controls to airlines to put penalties on airlines um increased use of uh, detention for um for asylum seekers fast tracking asylum claims and then as you talked about earlier the um, further outsourcing of immig- immigration control to employers to landlords healthcare workers and so all of these sort of build up to this um hugely hostile environment. But I wanted to, before we go forward and talk about, um, um, I wanted to talk about the the new Labour government, because that's something which you develop um, in the book, Maya, and also Windrush. I wanted to, first of all, go backwards, if you like, and just talk a little bit about how, you know, we learn history um, in this country, because all of this relates partly to the way which we're taught the history of empire, we're taught the history of slavery and colonisation, or in fact, are largely not taught. I mean, I managed to go through an entire um, school um, and a history degree without learning anything really about slavery. And it wasn't until I started working in Jamaica as a lawyer one summer that it actually began to all kind of make sense. And I started learning the history, if you like, um, on the ground. But it really does relate to the way um, in which we, I think, or people understand the history of migration. Because as you say, um, Maya, in the book, it didn't begin, you know, in the post World War II period, it didn't even begin with the Anglo-Saxons. You know, you know, this is a country which has always had immigration. At some point, there was nobody there. Mind, um, do you want to just say something about that? Yeah, I mean, so exactly as as you say, I uh, absolutely think that we should be taught about. Britain's colonial history and and colonies more broadly and thinking about um, what that meant, what the empire meant and how that continues to impact the present day in all kinds of ways. And just like you, I made it through the whole British state education system. I did A-level history and it was only when I could choose like it's almost like a mini dissertation and I chose to study about um the decolonization of India or anti-colonial movements because of my own family history that I learn anything at all about that past. And not only does that matter for um, understanding Britain's past in the world today, it also matters for those of us who whose family histories are not only within the UK and are sort of within this broader imperial context. In order to understand that that movement and what that meant and how how we're connected to different parts of the world and so I think it's it's really important on a number of different levels but exactly as you say there's um, much longer even longer than so I sort of start with more contemporary um, movement and really 
only really look from the 1900s onwards. There's a much, much longer history, of course, of movement, not only to Britain, but just globally and movement is a fact of life, as I said before. Um, It has always happened. It will always continue to do so. But I think part of this is about when I say um, the reason it matters is because it helps us understand Britain now is firstly what we've already talked about. So understanding, for instance, that many people who came to this country actually didn't come as migrants as such, which really came to light so much with Windrush. And you sort of saw the people, certain politicians, I won't name names, being very puzzled about how it was certain people were coming to the UK and didn't have proof of entry. Like there's just a total lack of, um, understanding about that history because it is erased in um, our education system largely and in the public debate. Um, But it also matters, I think, in terms of thinking about what Britain's history has been in, in, in relation to welcoming people or not. And the reason I say that is one of the things that I am particularly maybe unnecessarily obsessed with is whenever there is a news story about about um, asylum and perhaps the state or the government has done something that is um, disproportionately impacting people who are seeking asylum. So if, for instance, if you think around about the Napier barracks, most some of the most recent stories coming out of that, you know, people, including victims of torture being housed in or kept in ex-army barracks, you will find at the bottom of news stories, a home office spokesperson saying, Britain has a proud history of welcoming refugees from around the world. We're very proud of this history. And yes, there there are stories that we shouldn't ignore. And there are people who agitated for people to be able to come into the country. Um, Really important movements for change. But there's also a history of keeping people out. And one part of that history is the huge amounts of anti-Semitism that you find the 1905 Aliens Act is incredibly anti-Semitic. And what you also find is around the time of the Holocaust, there was not, it was not that Jewish refugees were just openly welcomed. That isn't what happened in British history. It's way more complex than that. And there's a very good book by Louise London where she talks about the kinder transport. And there's one particularly chilling line in that where she says, children came, but many of the parents did not. And so... To learn that history is to really puncture for me this myth around what Britain's history and its present. And that is, as I say, that doesn't mean erasing the really important movements for things that produce things like the kinder transport, but it means recognizing who was doing that and who was resisting it and not just sort of having this blanket understanding of that history. And for me, that's very important in the current moment we're we're in where um, there is a big debate around this and a big, big backlash around where people do call for learning about that history. Yeah, and this, of course, is something which David Olasuga has um, picked up, but also um, John Major in a, in a speech um, which is av- av- publicly available, he gave um, to in a temple um, a, a while ago, spoke also about this sort of myth that we have of, of, of British identity and British history um, and, and our selective memory for picking out the good bits, you know, abolition of slavery, for example, and, um, and forgetting the bad bits. Um, I, I wanted, though, to go um, back, um, Mayor, if we can, to um, the period of new labour, because that's actually a, a really interesting part of your book. So, I mean, that's also the period of history where um, 
Raza and I will think about the um, the Human Rights Act coming into force, and you know, which was you know a, a path breaking piece of legislation in many ways. But you're looking at it through the lens of what it meant for hostile environment, um, and you know, and it wasn't good for hostile environments. Do you want to just talk about um, that part of your research? Yeah, I would say that one of the I mean, one of the things I was concerned with 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 the book is is what you've already mentioned is understanding sort of the complicity of both um, the Conservatives and the Labour Party in in reproducing a lot of anti-immigration sentiment and implementing um, incredibly regressive and often, as we've spoken about, incredibly racist um immigration laws. And that matters for a number of different reasons. One of which, though, is that the Labour Party does call itself, you know, an anti-racist party. And I think we need to sort of pick up a pick up a um, magnifying glass and look at what that means and look at how it's actually a bit more nuanced, a bit more knotty, a bit more complicated than that. And for me, I'm sort of, it's become a slight obsession to look at the new Labour years um, because I really wanted to understand what was going on and and part of the reason for that is there is a wide-held belief now that, um, at least in the popular domain, um, in the media, that part of the reason why you saw the rise of UKIP and the rise of anti-immigration sentiment was because New Labour, quote-unquote, let too many people into the country. And so I really wanted to look and see what was happening because... Part of the thesis of the book is actually that that is a misreading of what happens is you don't, immigration doesn't itself produce anti-immigration sentiment, but what does produce anti-immigration sentiment is the the consistent problematization of immigration, this history that I've talked about that is erased, racism. Um, And because if we assume that it's immigration that produces anti-immigration feeling, we really do buy into uh, this sort of idea that these things are natural and inevitable. Like we, We sort of treat race, for instance, as natural and inevitable. And so... Yes, looking at New Labour is they. It's complex. <laughs> it's, it is complex their relationship with immigration and what they do. Um, they do have this message about having a, a what they call a more welcoming system in order to have more people come into the country and work here. But we think we need to examine that because at times um, the terms on which people come into the country to work work here aren't good. Like what rights can they access? How long can they stay? How much does it cost? These are things we should ask. But almost from the get-go, New Labour are so, the rhetoric is so anti-asylum, so intensely so. It was New Labour that took away the right to work when you were waiting on your asylum application. There was a huge number of things that they said and did that made lives more difficult for people here seeking um, asylum. And so when we're thinking about the hostile environment, yes, the Conservatives say, oh, well, Liam Byrne in 2007 talked about creating a hostile environment for what they call illegal immigrants, which I would call people who who happen to be undocumented. But it's I think it's actually, it's more than that. It's understanding this sort of this um, re- the rhetoric and the policies around immigration and asylum more broadly, and obviously at the time the conservatives were going were also really really pursuing this anti immigration line, and obviously we had the BMP and then later UKIP. So it's not that it's only New Labour producing this, but that narrative for me around New Labour let too many people in, and therefore anti immigration sentiment went up. Just totally erases 
the broader political context in which they were actually reproducing anti-asylum and creating new forms of anti-asylum discourse is no surprise that this is well this is one of the times where we see the language around bogus asylum seeker and genuine refugee really really be, be so popularized so I wanted to bring in um, Raza here because at this sort of same period, we, as I said, we had the Human Rights Act and we had, therefore, um, the protections of the convention, which were directly um, enforceable in, in the UK and Article 8 of the convention, the right to family and private life, which did make um, a big difference um, in a number of cases for, um, for asylum seekers and in immigration cases. But as Raza will um, tell us, you know, there's a limit to what you can do with, um, you know, with Article 8 in the light of what is effectively a, a hostile environment and very restrictive laws. And of course, the government continue to change the law. I mean, Raza, do you want to say something about the sort of development of, of you know, human rights challenges and then the pushback in, in terms of new laws, you know, being put in place or new rules or rewriting of the rules um, in this period? I, I, I mean, I think the sort of history of how the government and the courts have approached Article 8 in the context of immigration, which is you know, very much a political hot potato as we speak, um, is very, very interesting because in the sort of first 10 years or so, the courts um, adopted a very kind of balanced, some say reasonable approach where they said, look, yeah, of course, there's a public interest in controlling immigration and having immigration laws applied, but you've really got to understand that when you're splitting a family, that is a very dramatic interference with someone's family life if you're requiring them to all to, to, to uproot to a, a country with which they've got very limited uh, connection, then that's a very dramatic interference. The high point of that case law was in the late 2000s, Huang, cases like E.B. Kosovo. It was basically uh, Lord Bingham's court, um, which was very sort of reasonable and sensitive and some would say humane. Um, In particular, for example, Lord Bingham made the point, which I think is a point of profound importance when it comes to human rights, that immigrants don't have the franchise. So you can't say, the court can't say, well, we'll leave it to Parliament or the government to sort sort it out, which is what the lower courts had done in actually this case called Wang, where they said, look, you've got to apply the analogy with housing law. You've got to look at how housing has been the product of competing considerations being balanced in Parliament. And Lord Bingham said, look, that's not a good analogy because the rights, various rights in the housing context are represented in Parliament. Immigrants don't have the franchise. Now, of course, obviously raises big issues about the whole point of human rights, the deep philosophical issues about you know, tyrannies of the majority and so forth. So that, that was really the high point of the jurisprudence. And there was some sort of amazing almost poetic uh, passages in those judgments. And then what happened is that Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, introduced immigration rules, which are executive things. They're, they're policy statements that Parliament approves by what we call a negative resolution procedure, which is basically they don't really look at them in any great, great detail, although Theresa May tried to get the House of Commons to look at them. 
and get some sort of, you know, democratic approval that way. But essentially, they were sort of governmental uh, things, governmental uh, policy statements uh, in 2012. And since then, um, the courts have approached those rules in a very different way to how the Lord Bingham Court had essentially approached the Secretary of State's view, the government's view about what should be happening. The, the court, as it almost sort of held the line, and it could be said that in this decade, they haven't really done that. They've just said, look, this is what you think. We're going to defer to you massively. And th- th- those, those issues are still being worked through. I think they'll continue to be worked through for decades, actually. I mean, the other point I was going to make um, in the discussion that you were having a moment ago is about the importance of false narrative and propaganda. I think it's probably nowhere more clear than in the context of the sort of refugee crisis, where the government was saying, look, it's really terrible that these people are you know, playing into the hands of people smugglers, risking you know, terrible journeys. You know, in Barcelona, there's a column which records the, the numbers of dead People who've drowned in, in in the Mediterranean, many thousands. It just keeps going up. Extraordinary uh, monument. Um, and of course, the reason why people are forced to do that is the absence of safe legal routes. And that's obviously taken as a given. People think, well, yeah, there are no, of course there are no safe legal routes. There's an absolutely deliberate policy choice, as you were saying, Sam, in terms of you know, the fact that you can't get a visa, carrier's liability. The courts here have said, look, we are obliged once you get here to process your claim for asylum, but we are entitled to, and governments have successively done everything they possibly can to stop people getting here from immigration control being kind of outsourced and, and uh, um, you know, put in different countries in, 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 in the sort of Slovak and Czech republics is one example. So that there, there's a colossal kind of false narrative there that, look, the, you know, we, we don't want people to play into the hands of people smugglers when states have essentially created the conditions for people smugglers to operate in. There would not be people smugglers if you were able to get a visa to claim asylum here. Um, and that's very, very acute in the context of uh, a live issue here, which is that child refugees, so these, these are people, the children who are here on their own, who are recognized as refugees, not economic migrants, they're recognized as refugees. They are not allowed to bring their parents in, which is extraordinary. It sort of has the resonance with uh, kinder transport that you were talking about, Maya. And the, the justification for that is we don't want children to be sent on dangerous journeys. That's the consistent justification. It's something that the both committees in Parliament have said there's no evidence for. The UNHCR have said there's no evidence for. All NGOs, Amnesty International, have said there's no no evidence for. The government is absolutely committed to not allowing refugee children to be reunited with their families on the basis that they're doing this for the welfare of children because they don't want children to embark on hazardous journeys in circumstances where it is absolutely in the gift of the government to remove the hazard, quite apart from the fact there's no evidence for that. So I think that's very interesting. And the final thing I was going to say is that in terms of education, you both talked about your education and the British education system, how you didn't learn about Britain's colonial past and so forth. I did, uh, I studied, part of my degree was political philosophy. And so we studied all these sort of great liberal thinkers, Dworkin, Rawls, 
um, at, who were sort of very big on liberty and equality, they all had closed systems. They never dealt with immigration at all. And it's only sort of subsequently that, that I, I've read people like Joseph Karens who talk very, very powerfully about how, you know, question, liberal notions and um conceptions of equality need to talk about that basically makes the point that where you're born is a complete accident of birth you do nothing to deserve where you're born and the current system is you know, akin to feudalism yeah i couldn't agree more this idea that you know, your nationality and your place of birth are they're, they're, it's a lottery um, an absolute um, lottery, and you know anybody could end up on the on the wrong side of it. Um, I mean, the, the the scandal of the child refugees is you know is is a scandal. I wanted to talk now about the the Windrush scandal because I think it's such a, an important aspect of of the hostile environment, and and it remains um, an ongoing scandal. We can see it's far from over. Wendy Williams' lessons learned review was published in March last year at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, It had hugely significant findings. She interviewed hundreds of individuals, um, including uh, um, a very large number of the people who were directly affected. She had a team of um, almost 50 um, officials helping her. And she found the scandal was foreseeable and avoidable, that it came about in part because of officials' poor understanding of Britain's colonial history, that um, a culture of disbelief and carelessness had spread through the Home Office, that race clearly played a part in what occurred. And relevant to the hostile environment, Environment, she recommends that the government undertake a full review and evaluation of the policy and the measures. Now, we know that all of her recommendations have been accepted in full, but we can see there are problems with the compensation scheme. We can see there are huge issues about delay um, and there's a lack of legal aid um, for people who are affected by the process. Um, the amounts of compensation have been um, d- um, fairly derisively, and, and we've seen very recently there's been um, an enormous um, uptick um, in, in, in the level, on, uh, the cap for, um, for those claiming um, compensation. But the, the, it remains the case that a very small proportion of those um, who are effective have actually yet to receive anything. I mean, Maya, what's your view on how things might change following um, Windrush and following the government's acceptance of you know, the really, really significant findings by Wendy Williams? Well, I suppose the first thing is to say um, is to recognise the specific and appalling way in which the people who've been caught up in the Windrush scandal have been treated. You know, I'm sure we have all heard and watched people have to explain the horrendous things that happened to them, whether they were deported, um, separated from loved ones, whether they were denied work, lost their homes, weren't able to access NHS treatment. Really, this shows the outcome, I think, of the hostile environment. And it, it's, you know, um, the the academic um, now and writer, uh, Gary Young, talks about, said that this is this is not a glitch in the system. This is the system. And I think that that is, I I really agree with that. And unfortunately, I don't, I mean, I am something of a natural pessimist, but I don't hold much hope out for um, there there being the kind of significant change we need to see. That isn't to say say there isn't going to be any kind of change, but the, the reason I say that is sort of, 
it's, it's twofold. One is that almost immediately when the Windrush scandal was on the front pages of our newspapers, as, as um, ministers were sort of saying how awful this was and how the immigration debate needed to change. They were still saying, but we need to keep these policies in place for illegal immigrants, people they call illegal immigrants. I don't think a person can be illegal. I think that illegality is produced um, by the legal system, by the political system, by our laws. Um, and, you know, I've interviewed people who have become undocumented for all kinds of reasons, whether they can't afford the fees, they the sort of rules change around them and they're not entirely sure. They're scared because they're living in a country Country where they're told they should be scared um, because of, because of their status. You know, there's all kinds of reasons that people become undocumented or are undocumented, and this label illegal just sort of strips away the humanity. And so, as they were apologising, I was already sort of eyebrow raised, like how far is this going to go? Because the hostile environment is still largely in place, and this is one of the most important things. We are living in a global pandemic, and I have interviewed people who are scared to go to their GP because of the hostile environment. And yes, the government have paused certain things. You are able to go and get tested for. Um, if you have COVID symptoms, go and get tested. And they say they won't share your data. They won't. There will be no um, repercussions. But as I've said, there is a broader environment of facility. And so I think that's the first thing. But the second thing is, I think it was the week, the week of or the week after, Pretty Patel stood up in the Houses of Commons, you know, accepted the recommendations of this, uh, the, the Wendy Williams um, lessons learned review. And one of the things that's said in that is that humanity should be in the center of policymaking, right? So Wendy Williams gives a load, load of recommendations, but distills it down into a few core ones that she sort of, that are used as almost an umbrella. And one of the things she talks about is humanity. But at the same time, Pretty Patel was saying that she was, she and the government were, pursuing an incredibly hostile rhetorical strategy against people crossing the channel. And yes, these, these, we do have to understand the way these things function differently, the people who are crossing the channel and the difference between the so-called Windrush generation. But it doesn't suggest that humanity is going to be injected into the system when you are calling people who are crossing the channel illegal immigrants, when you're questioning, saying they're not genu quote unquote genuine refugees before they've even, even there's been any kind of um, attempt to speak to them about why it is that they're making these crossings and everything you have both said about people having to get here in order to even put in their asylum claim is for me like depressingly and horrifically, but perfectly encapsulated within the channel crossings and all of the debate around that. There was no question around how desperate you must be to gain, get, try and make it across the channel, what it must be to then arrive somewhere and automatically be told that you are like lying and automatically be told that you shouldn't be here, that you should seek, you should seek refuge in, in France. Um, there's just, it just, it fills me with um, despair, but I would say, just to say one positive thing, is that I know that there's so many people who are resisting this. There's so many people who are resisting the hostile environment, so many people who are still trying to shine a light on what's happening to the Windrush generation and people who aren't able to get there, um, haven't been compensated, haven't been, still aren't being treated um, fairly. Many people, like whether that is lawyers, activists, resisting, rejecting this label of illegal immigration, showing how racism in, is, is inherent to all of this and refusing actually to sort of reproduce the 
good refugee, bad migrant binary. There's so many people doing this kind of work that that does give me a lot of hope and, you know, including people who've been through the system themselves or are fighting um, for their own sort of cases or their own rights. It is, um, they shouldn't have to do it, but it gives me hope that that is happening. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about that, the uh, reaction, the public reaction to the Windrush scandal is that people were horrified when people understood what was happening um, and what was going on inside the Home Office and the way it was impacting on on, on British people, um, but not just um, British people. They understood the wider context of the Home Office. I think there was a, you know, a widespread um, um, concern and and a support for um, for people who were affected, which actually probably surprised the government. Um, so, uh, yeah, I I think I, I think the the public is less of a problem than the than than the politics overall. Um, one of the other things that I think the Windrush scandal brings home so clearly is the uh, real vulnerability when you don't have um, legal aid. You have the huge complexity of this immigration system to navigate, um, which we've spoken about, um, and something like deportation, which historically had been covered by legal aid, was removed from um, from um, legal aid. And I mean, anybody who's done a deportation case will know that, I mean, the law is complex. Um, you know, for somebody who doesn't um, know the law, doesn't, uh, who isn't a specialist in um, immigration law, wouldn't be enough to even be legally qualified. You need to be specialist in that particular area. Um, that then may not speak English as a first language. I mean, it's, it's, it's just not possible to have a a fair, um, a fair um, hearing, and to mount um, any kind of um, defence to against against the, the case. I mean, Razi, we, we've since you've been working in this area. I mean, we, there's been a salami slicing of legal aid, hasn't there? Um, and so, for all um, immigration cases, I mean, there's almost no legal aid now at all. So it leaves you know, swathes of people very, very vulnerable to um, action without really having any recourse. Um, um, to justice. Yeah, it goes back to the point that we were making about the complexity of the laws as well. I mean, the, the idea that you can do this on your own is is risible. I mean, you clearly can't. You need expert legal advice, and, and that hasn't been properly funded. Um, I mean, I think that the sort of legal aid system is the sort of second greatest thing about our country. The first greatest is, is the NHS. Um, you, everyone will have their own view about what's happening there. Um, and legal aid was the second greatest thing. I mean, uh, people, if you look at the early cases, the great cases on uh, in um, Strasbourg and the European Court of Human Rights, the cases which sort of established rights for minorities, it's the great lo- sort of public lawyers in the 80s who are representing. Michael Beloff is, is in those cases. And, and I know from uh, you know, a former colleague of ours that he, he was – very proud to have been able to do that and thought that this was possible because of legal aid. It allowed people who didn't have means to get access to high quality legal representation uh, in circumstances where they otherwise couldn't. So yeah, absolutely. It's critical. Great. Maya, Raza, final question. What, what needs to be done? What do we need to do to get rid of hostile environment? Where to start? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot that can be done. I think that the actual the laws that you could get rid of, the laws that make up the hostile environment, but exactly things like 
um, having a pro- proper legal aid for people, as, as has been talked about, um, reducing the fees. You know, we have some uh, absolutely extortionate high fees in the immigration system, reducing the bureaucracy, making things a bit clearer, making it easier to navigate. And I mean, I think actually talking about and thinking about the, the violence and the, the, the harm that's being inflicted on people through bordering processes, one of the things that often is talked about and was talked about um, when the, the 39 people were found dead in the back of a van in Essex was that more borders would have stop this from happening, more bordering. And um, there's an argument to be made that actually for some people it's the it's the lack of um, routes, the lack, the too many borders that are making it difficult for people to get to countries so that they risk their lives in order to get here. And so for me, actually thinking about dismantling bordering is one of the most important things and thinking about the different ways in which we can do that and what that will would look like is a longer term goal alongside the, the, um, the other measures that I've talked about. But that is, um, you know, I wrote a book about immigration and that's where I ended up is arriving at the point the 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 bordering processes are are a huge part of the problem um i agree with all of that i I think people like maya are far more important than people like us we're we're tech or certainly me i'm a technician um what maya does is far far more important and I, i think that the most critical thing is these false narratives and propaganda um there's a, a fantastic former president of the inter-american uh, court of human rights judge antonio uh, Cansado trindad he said that the problem of of refugees and migrants uh, cannot be problem quote unquote cannot be approached otherwise than in a spirit of human solidarity and, and we don't have that yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, Wendy Williams' focus on, on the individuals and in her report was so, um, so critical because she put them at the heart of the story. And that's, you know, that's what comes out of, you know, your work, Maya. It comes out of Amelia Gentleman's book on, on, on Windrush. You know, it's, it's about people. It's about, you know, it's about, you know, individuals. Well, thank you both so much and, um, really look forward to more conversations. 